Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? What the fuckaholics? What's happening? Oh, it's me, Mark Marin. This is WTF, my podcast. Welcome. I'm uh, happy you're here, as you can probably tell, perhaps, unless uh, these mics are absolutely fucking amazing, which they might be, but you could probably sense the room is different. You can probably sense that perhaps tonally, Things are a little different. I am in probably, I'm going to go ahead and say the second greatest city in this country. I, 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 I'm not even going to go into why one is one or what one is. That's, that's what a coward I am. But I'm in Chicago for a couple of days doing a thing. I don't even know if I can talk about the thing, but God damn it. I love Chicago. I shot my special in Chicago. For those of you who haven't seen that special, I know it's hard to find. I know it's hard to get, but go to epicshd.com and there's a way you could probably watch it. You might even have epics and they have it on the thing there at the demand place at epicshd.com. But don't worry, in a couple of months, it will be on Hulu and we can all watch it together on Hulu. A lot of people get the Hulu. Eventually, all will see it more later with me, Mark Marin, taped right here in Chicago. That was the last time I was here. I'm here to do a Joe Swanberg thing that I'm not really supposed to talk about. But uh, it's a pretty cool thing. I'm acting. I'm doing some, uh, you know, acting for me. I, I'm, I think I'm, uh, I'm okay at acting uh, the part of me. I can do it, uh, you know, on camera for Marin. I can also do it uh, in other places, and I can do it where you can change the name. See, this is the trick of my acting technique, is that my technique is act exactly like yourself, give or take a little bit, turn this down, turn that up, if you can make those kind of adjustments, and then just have a different name for the character. And then if people say, like, well, he's not really acting, maybe they don't understand the character. That's how I justify and rationalize my acting technique. If you'd like to learn how to act, uh, with the Mark Marin system, here here it is. Uh, just try not to be too self-conscious, act like yourself, react to things honestly, and listen. And then take some direction, like, you know, move over there, move over there. Uh, can you do an accent? Probably not. I probably can't. But uh, can you do, uh, can you turn, can you, can you speak a little uh, lower? Yeah, but you might have to remind me because I, I do a lot of mic work. 
where you're not even supposed to speak loud, but it's an enunciation thing. But anyway, so I'm doing some acting, and I'm sitting here in my room. This is morning before my call time, and there there are actors I'm acting with that uh, I'm pretty excited about. There's people I haven't met, but I'm going to be acting with uh, Jane Adams, who I'm uh, very exciting to me because she's one of those actresses that um, I think I've met her, but I don't know. I'm just very familiar with uh, with her work. And I feel like I know her. And that happens a lot. That's one of the reasons I think that the podcast functions <laughs> the way it does, is I have a peculiar familiarity with people I've seen once. But, uh, but I guess the point I was trying to make, I'm also working with some uh, young actresses. I'm working with uh, Emily Rodakowski. And I'm working with um, Alexandra Marzella, who is a uh, performance artist. Emily is an actress. They both seem like lovely young women, uh, smart, talented people. But the thing is, like, I don't know, like, Alexandra, I don't know what, she's a performance artist. And all I know is, I'll tell you this right now, I'm in my room right now um, doing this. I'm talking on the mic. I'm being as honest as possible. I don't feel great. I feel a slight nag of a buggy kind of, but, I, you know, I'm not, that, that's between me and you. I'm just trying to, you know, you know, kind of suck it up and do the work. And she's probably in her room uh, doing a naked um, Snapchat. I don't know what Snapchat is. I, it was just shown to me recently. And I don't know what this whole world of art is. I don't know this immediacy. I can't get involved with it. Am I just, am, am I a dinosaur? Am I, am I almost ex- extinct with uh, my intellectual context almost uh diminished is it culturally completely irrelevant artistically i mean the woman i'm seeing sarah kane she's a a painter i understand painting i understand a beautiful abstract canvas i understand the skill set that goes involved that gets involved with that but there's a whole world of technological uh expression art that uh i don't know man maybe i gotta get hip maybe i don't have time but uh, it's, it's interesting to see it. I'm also working with uh, David Pesquese, who's a, a Chicago guy who I've known. Uh, I have a couple of scenes with him. Why am I telling you all this? Am I just gloating? No, I, I mean, I got to tell you what's going on and what, exactly what is going on. Joe Swanberg is uh, directing, and I love that guy. Maybe you guys uh, heard me um, interview him. Uh, I think he's a great director, and he's very fun to work with. And today, you know, I have to act like uh, I'm getting boozed up. Because it's Chicago. So today's show, speaking of art, speaking of performance art, Alexandra Marzella is the new incarnation of performance art. Uh, I was on the Lower East Side of Manhattan during the, I, I, would, I would think it is the tail end of what was the performance art scene of the 70s and 80s. I think it was sort of crashing down. My point is Eric Bogosian is uh, on the show today. Eric Bogosian, the uh, writer, actor, performance artist, uh, playwright, one-man show inventor. I think uh, it was Bogosian, you know, outside of theatrical presentations of maybe Hal Holbrook doing Mark Twain and some other stuff. Uh, I think that Bogosian can be credited for um, creating the modern one-man show and making us all feel that uh, we could perhaps do a one-man show. 
I've talked to Bogosian a couple of times, and I've seen him several times. And uh, he was one of those guys that, you know, when I was in New York, you'd see his books at St. Mark's Bookstore, and you'd be like, that guy's the guy, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, man. And uh, Drinking in America, I think, was one of the other ones. And, you know, he was just a, he was a dude. He was a, a force down there. I think I saw Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll two or three times, twice as a works in progress and once as a finished piece. And I, I, he was one of those guys where I was always sort of like, all right, this guy's really fucking good. He's got a lot of momentum. He's got a lot of power up there. He's good at the characters. But why isn't he just doing stand-up comedy? Because he's going for the joke. A lot of these characters are going for the joke. And of course, me as a younger man, I was like, that guy's just a comic that doesn't doesn't have the guts to go in the comedy club where us men are doing stand-up comedy. You know, that was, a, that was my attitude. And obviously, whatever he did for himself provided him a very wide buffet of possibilities to grow as a creative person to the point where... You know, I, it's not out of nowhere because he's been working on it a long time, but he uh, he's actually, um, he's written a book that, that talks about a, a, a little-known story uh, in, in relation to the uh, Armenian genocide called Operation Nemesis about a, a bunch of, uh, I think I believe, Armenians that lived in America who, who arranged the assassination of many of the uh, architects and executors of the Armenian genocide and uh, and Bogosian just went down that rabbit hole and started doing that work. Man, I'll tell you, there was a time where I tried to do the one-man show thing. I mean, some of you know that. But I remember when I did Jerusalem Syndrome, I got to be honest with you, man, I was like, I didn't know what the fuck to do. There's been so many junctures in my career that were sort of... Uh, fueled by by a desperation a need to do something that you know could put me somewhere i worked really hard on putting that one person show together jerusalem syndrome which became a book i used to do these fucking two and a half three hour shows at this little place called nada 45 me and kirsten ames who was my uh, director and dramaturge just editing and recording and putting things together. And then we got a run at the West Beth Theater. We had a set decorator. And it was like a big deal. It was like, you know, it was a big deal for me to not improvise, to stay on a script, to, to do actions when I was supposed to be act, doing actions, to, 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 to make movements that were planned and written. It was, it was ridiculously difficult. A couple of months I ran at West Beth. I don't know what I was thinking, but uh, but I I got a I got a New York Times review, and the guy was like, he seemed to like the show, I guess, but I think his his note was um, the character of Marin doesn't really transform, and I'd never gotten that, out of that I never got that out of my mind that that a theatrical performance, something that's called a piece of theater, there should be some transformation. I don't know whose fucking rule is that, or if that's just a rule that that that's something that happens. In act uh, at the end of Act Two or whatever, if it's not just about story, it's some sort of transformation. But uh, you know, it was a fairly positive review, and at the end, he said, uh, "We'll see what happens with this Mark Marin character." This is where one person show ends up. 
this was the painful thing in in a way where you know because it was Jerusalem syndrome is r- roughly about a trip to Israel, but more about framing all of my weird obsessions and compulsions in some sort of spiritual context or religious context that uh, you know I, I I couldn't get a regular agent uh, you know and and I got a, a personal appearance agent that that dealt with uh, random people who did one person shows Janine Frank. God bless her, does a great job. But uh, I started uh, booking uh, Jewish community centers. <laughs> oh, man. I'm doing so much better. I don't know if you really know, you know, you really feel in your guts who you are and what you're doing and what it means and, you know, what you need to do to uh, perhaps change your life when you're, you're doing your off-Broadway show at uh, the Jewish Community Center, you know, in, in Newton, Massachusetts. Or I, uh, you know, for like a, a half a house of people that were expecting something fundamentally Jewish and, uh, you know, where you're cussing and you're doing your little bits to, you know, a lot of senior citizens, a few younger people. But... Uh, I, needless to say, my friends, I, I've hit a few bottoms <laughs> in in this life, but uh, but now I'm in Chicago, working with Joe uh, Swanberg and some interesting people, and I'm excited. I talked to Bogosian about. I always bring it up, and we actually have a. I, I like Eric. We are. I believe we are friends. Uh, the the times we spent together have been engaging and exciting. He's a very. Um, excited and manic and thoughtful and and bright guy and he's a creative guy and he likes to talk so it's great for me so enjoy this uh, conversation that i had with uh, eric bogosian uh, i'm again i'm uh, i'm not in the garage right now so there will be no guitar playing at the end i don't even know why i'm telling you that now i just i don't want you to get your expectations up eric's new book is called operation nemesis it's available wherever you get books all right, so this is me and Bogosian. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grade or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you you get your podcasts. So you, did you rent that Mercedes? Yes, of course. I have to. I'm Why? in Los Angeles. Is that what your feeling was? Yes. Do you own you a show? Because in, in LA, if you show up and you don't have... A nice car, suddenly you're like a second-class citizen. They know I, all about you. I was driving a 2006 Camry for years, and I finally had that moment where I had to go to an event, and I pulled up to the valet, and I was, like, embarrassed. 
Yeah. I, I never yeah. thought about it before. Yeah. I was it sort of like, clean, fuck it. Too. You have to clean it. I got to clean. I just got a new one. I can't clean it. I'm no good with it. Like, and I already fucked it up. I have a car in New York. You do? But it's totally covered with dust and What kind crap. of car is that? Just a Toyota Highlander. That you drive in the city? With, with 150,000 miles. Right. So what are you doing? Why Why did you come out here? I have been coming back and forth here for about a few months because I wrote this book about an Armenian right. revenge conspiracy. Operation Nemesis. Yeah, so which, you're out here on- a true story, true book, not a fictional book, a real, this is real history. Book. So at some point you, you sort of locked into this, this story and you're like, you're going to be a scholar. You're going to learn it. You're going to get to the bottom yes, of it. Yes. But that's a new thing, right, for you, really? Uh, yeah, and also something I didn't really plan on because this was going to be a screenplay like seven years ago. Armenians were always saying, why don't you write something about the Armenian genocide? And I'm like, what am I going to write? And then I heard about this young guy who had killed the leader of the Turks in Berlin in 1921 as a revenge against the, the genocide. genocide. And I thought, oh, this will make a movie. It should take me a couple of months to write it. I started, yeah. um, it, it all made sense that he got acquitted because they felt that since he'd seen his whole family massacred, he had a right. Yeah. This is what he had said right. in court. An eye for 10 eyes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And once I started doing research on it, uh, you can get the court transcript on online. The man's name was Sogomon Tetlerian. Yeah. Good luck with yeah, yeah, doing yeah. that. Why don't you, yeah, the first <laughs> hour of your research is spelling that. So <laughs> and have a good to, morning. And learning how to say yeah. it. And then I found out that, in fact, he was a member of a hit squad operating out of Massachusetts. There was this obscure book that came out of France that I found in translation. Yeah. And that there, it wasn't just him. There were a couple of dozen guys and that they targeted six they targeted all these turkish leaders and they knocked off six of these guys the pretty much all the guys who committed the genocide were killed by armenians five years after the genocide from and massachusetts they, uh, well they were people all over new england massachusetts were the organizers they were these small businessmen and they recruited these Gunmen, men who were like ex-military and, and other guys who were familiar with how to. But handle this it. was uh, this was uh, solely uh, this was not uh, sanctioned by the government of Armenia. Uh, this is historically a little vague, but no, they couldn't sanction it because the government army, it was a very small, but was it like Munich? Time. Was it like the Israeli revenge for Munich? Was there some sort of covert it's, operation within the government that said like, you guys, we're not saying do this, but go ahead if you have to. It was more of something that a political group oh, okay. had decided that they, they, there had been devastation and different people were like what should we do should we save the orphans should we raise money to get women out of muslim bondage this is post-genocide now okay, right. before we go too deep into it because i live you know right here at glendale and right. the armenians are part of my day-to-day -day life actually and you know i i i hear about the armenian genocide but be, be i'm ignorant of it so is this something you grew up knowing about Oh, absolutely. Now, what, so what happened? When, Just, I was, when I was a little kid, my grandfather used to sit and tell me stories. When I was five years old, he'd say, if you ever meet a Turk, kill him. Right. I mean, these were the kind of things but Give me I the numbers and the events in, in, a, short, in a short way. Uh, what happened? World War I, under the fog of war, yeah. the, the leaders of the what was then the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish government, figured they can 
get rid of all the Armenians and when nobody's looking and and the, take over that that turf. They yeah, they could take their property. Right. They could take their their position, their mines, their factories, and uh, also get rid of them because right. they were Christians in a Muslim country. There's there's a it's a horrible echo of what's actually happening right now over there. And so in, B, in B, 1915, 1916 were the big killing years. And the estimates are that over a million people uh-huh. were. And the, we're talking about civilians here. We're talking about women, children. Just going through people. the streets, shooting them or, or actually camps? Or well, they, they send out uh, soldiers. If it's a small village, you mm-hmm. just bring everybody. You just kill everybody. Right. Or you kill all the men, cut right. their throats or whatever. Oh. And then send the women on a deportation caravan with their children which goes into the desert which you can't survive uh-huh this is classic it's and so if they can possibly get to the place in syria which was where they were aiming them which is this desert and they might go in circles for weeks and mm-hmm. then finally you know just wear them all out anybody who got there they were concentration camps and then they died there as well in Derzor, which is what which is in the news all the time now as like as a jewish guy you know you grow up with these stories uh, you know they never forget the holocaust you know generationally even if i didn't have family that would that died in the holocaust it was something that you were brought aware of culturally as a jew yeah. so now as a, an armenian kid you're full armenian yeah so your grandfather would tell you this the, these stories he saw his family get killed maybe well, he saw things that he would tell me about, like they would get round up everybody into the church, lock the doors and burn the church down with the people in it. And that was something that he told me about. Terrifying as a kid. I don't know what I made of it. It all seemed like it had happened very far away in a very... First of all, I had no idea. What is Armenia? Where is Armenia? Were we Middle Eastern? Did they ride camels? Yeah, but I didn't still, know but, any about that. So but it was you like, grew up with these yeah. rituals and habits and foods. Yeah. You know, and culture. Yeah, it, but I loved it. I loved being course. Armenian. In fact, you know, just trying to embrace my roots, which, to be honest, coming into this Hollywood thing in the 80s, and I have an agent saying, if you fix your nose and straighten your hair and change your last name, you have a future in this Did business. they really say that? Yes. He took me to the grill when I got signed at William Morris in 1983. He looked at, he said, you have a lot of talent. Just do these things. They, but then right after you said no, did he say like, well, we'll cast you as a Jew. <laughs> That's my, been my job pretty much. I am the archetypical <laughs> Jewish guy yeah. on everything I do. Right, you did that Woody Allen movie. I've which done, you, well, done Which one was the, that? Uh, where you played the brother-in-law? Deconstructing Harry. That was great. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I learned a lot about acting doing that particular bit. Uh, really? From him? Because he's pretty hands-off. No, I just, he? I was... I only had a few lines. I mean, I had a few pages with Carol and Aaron. And then I and I was like, today, I'm not going to go to craft services and hang out all day and talk, complain about my agent. I'm right. going to stay in my trailer, and I'm going to just keep doing these 12 lines over and over again. Right. And, uh, and he goes fairly slowly, lighting and everything. Uh-huh. And I was in there for like six hours. I already knew it when I got to set. Going deep Jew. And then I went, yeah. yeah. But I really thought about, what, what are you really saying here? What's happening? And I had never really done that deep work before and that and it was a choice now i bring it now i bring it to everything i do i say wait a minute you think you know this you think you know your lines you think you know what the scene's about but stick with it you'll there's more here you just haven't found it yet and so that's been sort of a new part of my my mo right so it's my assumption like you you know and looking over you know what i'm interested in uh, about your life that that this project this operation nemesis for whatever reason, the, the, you went down this rabbit hole at a time in your life where I, I think it was probably important to you to connect with your heritage. 
and own yeah, it. And, and also, like, enlarge my sense of who I am, which right. includes, like, who my grandparents are, right. what it means to be Armenian, and all this kind of stuff. But instead, this is, of, instead of sort of keeping it at arm's length, right. like, I'm a little... Uh, or or, know, or literally running away from it, because I imagine, yeah. not unlike me, you, you know, when you're, you're young and creative and you want to make your mark, you, there's a liability to, you know, getting hung up on, on tradition or, or your past, or you just want to be who you are. And do your yeah, thing. Yeah, and I also I was that. I mean, I was a suburb. I was one of the first mall rats in the United States. They built a mall near my home. Where'd in, you grow up? In Massachusetts, in Woburn. Where, so where, they built the Burlington Mall. And yeah. I, and I used to just me and my friend. We got busted there for How smoking pot. In the, I'm 62. So I'm 50. All right. So 10 years before, I, the, that was the first mall. That was uh, that was when yeah. it started happening. So we they didn't know when they built the malls right. that it would attract teenagers who would just go there and Spend hang around. Day. Yeah. And we were in the we were in the parking lot smoking weed. Yeah. We had actually just dropped acid as well. And and the cops busted. I'm like, next thing I know, I'm in handcuffs. Yeah, on acid. Tripping on acid <laughs> in a jail cell in Burlington. I'm actually trying to get my uh, what's the picture they do with the little number? The mugshot. The mugshot. You I'm can't still, get it. Can't I, find I, it. I asked somebody to look it up for me. So okay. what year was that? So that was like 69? That's Late 71, 60? 71. So I'd just gone to college. I'd come back to hang out with my with my homies and we So you're going that. to you're going to college that first year the the entire culture is blown open by the 60s and it's sort of just settling into just pure drugs and rock and roll. The yeah, uh, I was like a junior version of that cuz that was all happening when I was still in high school. Well, that's what I mean like yeah. right. So the 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 actual revolution was already subsiding and just now uh, in, infiltrating pop culture in the form of music yeah. so everybody can But I was already doing all that stuff. I mean, I started doing bad stuff when I was in high school. Oh yeah. And, what was uh, the bad stuff then? You know, Acid, Speed, they, acid, acid, a lot of acid. Acid, and I worked in a drugstore, which wasn't helpful. So, <laughs> <laughs> but that I was would, like the real acid, right? Yeah, that was the mythical kind of like that was the real shit. Well, we had Woburn had uh, bikers. Woburn, yeah. So we would, I would grab a bottle of something and I'd take it up to these guys. Yeah. And the, uh, can I say this now? Is this yeah. like, am I going to bust it for doing it? No, I think there's and a it, statute like, of limitations <laughs> fucking 50 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> white Cross, you know, I'd find a bottle of yeah, White Cross yeah. and I'd find these bikers and they'd say, here, here's a bag of weed for that. And yeah. I, that's because that's all I wanted was just some So they, those are like Bennies almost. There was like yeah. the little white speeds. Yeah. You got to take like and five of them. It. And I loved hanging around those guys because they kind of protected me. I grew up in a town that, I mean, it wasn't... There were a lot of tough guys in my town. I remember and I wasn't I wasn't tough. Right. So right. I needed I needed the big guy. And you were Armenian. So you're, sur- <laughs> yeah. so you're surrounded by these like, you know, these uh New England townies, which are some of the hardest, most interesting people. I I, I know guys that come from Woburn. I started doing comedy in the, all those towns. Oh yeah. The, the satellite towns of Boston, all over New England. And it's intimidating. There's some intimidating cats out there. Yeah. Well, I made sure I had one of them right now. Because you'd be sitting there. You know, smoking weed at some party yeah. and, and having a drink, and there'd be some guy just watching sure. you, glowering, yeah. like, "Who's this guy?" Yeah, yeah. You know, who are who you? Who the fuck are you? Yeah, and then Mikey would stand up and go, "He's okay. He's okay." With me. And then I wouldn't. <laughs> now, years later, Mikey took a bite out of me when we were in the middle of a fight, like a time. bite, like a bite. Yeah, bite? I had I had teeth marks for about <laughs> six years after that. Where's Mikey now, Eric? He's six feet under. Sadly. Is he? Yeah, oh. yeah. He was a great guy. So. <laughs> Growing up in New England, now, okay, so was there an Ar- Armenian community? Because you no. talk about, there well, wasn't. Well, in, in Watertown, where I was a little kid, yes, and there was the St. James Church, and that's where I was an altar boy, and I did, I was an altar boy, and. Catholic? Po- uh, no, Armenians are Armenian. Armenians are a- Armenian apostolic. 
Uh, they have slightly different groupings, like especially down here in Southern California, yeah. you have the the the, the uh, more political Armenians. They're they're one group, and then there's the the guys that I came up with, which are like, but they're all Armenian. Armenian is the oldest Christian religion, pretty much in the world. In 301 AD, the the Armenians decided to become Christian. Uh huh. Maybe at the time it seemed like a good idea. Yeah. It's very. So few, there's still a few people that remember Jesus or had, or had <laughs> yes. a grandfather oh, that my grandfather oh, yeah. used to run with Jesus. Oh, yeah. The first apostles <laughs> went to Armenia. Yeah. Yeah. That's where they went. Right. Uh, Bartholomew. Guess we're out of work. We got to spread the word. <laughs> Unfortunately, a few hundred years later, you have uh, the uh, the first giant Muslim empire the arabs mm-hmm. they don't really like christians and right. then they're followed by the uh the turkish muslim empires the mongols all none of these guys are happy about and it's Christian. still going on uh, it's yes insane. sadly sadly on my way here today i was thinking we're going to talk about whatever it is we're going to talk yeah. about and so, such bad shit is happening over there right now i wish we you know i wonder to what degree just if we can take one second to be a little political sure. here, um, to what degree there's a kind of a racism against Middle Eastern people that people don't care about what's happening to all these Syrian refugees. It's just some statistic. And especially for us as Americans who started all this crap in the first place and why everybody's running all over the place over there. What are we doing to help them? You know, these it's going to start getting cold out there in, yeah. a, in a month or so. And these are just families just stuck People. all over the place. In fact, it was this kind of thing that, that kicked in my feelings about what were my roots back when Serbia and Bosnia was happening in the 90s. I would watch these refugees coming out of these towns and I'd say, that must have been what it was like for my family and my people because this is what happens. They come in. These people are just yeah. living their life, yeah. not bothering anybody. They're not even political. or They're not thinking about it. No, they're just and the next thing you know, they're in the street. No an home. army shows up. They take all the men off mm. and they put a bullet in their head and then they take all the women and they do stuff with the women and then who knows? I mean, in the in 100 years ago, they were, the children were valuable too. You could A child... You could keep that child to be like a yeah, little slave for you, sure. or yeah. your, or it could be your child. You mm-hmm. could adopt the child, right? So, at any rate, I just think that we got to think about this is a major humanitarian, yeah, screw up. And I wonder to what degree, because these people are Middle Eastern, yeah. nobody seems to care that much. I mean, people care. But- I, I don't know. Like it might be that, but it's also just a, about American culture in general. That the you know the level of distraction and immediacy to people's lives, it, you know, and their concerns are, are selfish, but also complicated. I don't know that necessarily you know Americans are bad people or judging it as Middle Eastern. It's just not here. I, yeah, I think but we started it. That's the. I thing. know, but you I, know, I they get people that take. Well, no, I'm not arguing with you, but I, <laughs> yeah. don't, I don't know if no, that if that if that if that occurs on a personal level. I don't know that if the average American, if they really knew what was going on, I think they'd be like, "Well, I'd like to help," but I, I think the leap for an average personal, you know, one-on-one American to go like, "This is my fault." That that's a different political issue, but a humanitarian movement, you know, certainly should should people should be aware but what i think is interesting about you is that you early on in your career have always been you know a voice of of brutal satire of this country so your your awareness 
of of what America is on on not necessarily political level on a cultural level was intact you know from the beginning and as you get older and now you get wiser and you get more empathetic and your heart gets bigger <laughs> you're able to sort of broaden that the the understanding of what America is responsible for on a global level you know into this awareness now and this work with Armenia but but like when I look at think about you you know or whatever I I uh, project as who you were on the Lower East Side in 1980 or whenever the fuck that started. Yeah. That, you know, you you were a, an, an angry, sweaty, you know, uh, manic voice, you know, attacking America from the inside. Classic, classic angry young man who knows everything, knows better, and with great indignation, I'm telling everybody off, and I know what's right, and you don't know, and I'm going to tell you. Although I did it all, as you say, in uh, satire, and in sarcastic, and in ass character. backwards. You know, the whole but idea you, was to create a, I do, you know, street people. By the way, I just want to tell you yeah. that those old monologues that I used to do, yeah. I have all my friends doing them now, and we have them online, 100monologues.com. I just want to tell you that. We've been spending a couple of years. We've now got 50 of them, because it turned out over those 20 years, I had done 100 different bits. Yeah. And- Characters a lot Yeah, of and somebody was saying one day, I don't know who it was, one of my friends said, you know, I could do one of those, and then we started shooting them and collecting How them. How do they hold up? They're good. Yeah. They're funny. It's They're really funny. A, some are some are better than others. I mean, there's people on there like I mean, Jen Tilly does one of the one of the bits. Uh, Michael Shannon does one. Uh, Stuhlbarg does one. I like that. And They're funny. That guy. So uh, give me a sense of this because this is like a piece of uh, the New York puzzle that I've not talked to anybody that you know that that era of performance when I think performance art really started to have don't say performance art to me but okay no just define itself that yeah, that's okay. what it's called yeah. so you know it's not called stand up comedy you know you can call it theater Perfor we call it performance let's call it performance that's fine okay I'm just trying to you know the same people you want to take responsibility for Syria as Americans we need that <laughs> we need to sort of broaden out you know performance <laughs> art is what it is to them but now okay. they know it's performance All right. but uh but what was it? What was the scene? Because you come out. Would you go to theater school and then go to New York? I mean, yeah. you're in Woburn. How the fuck did you decide? I was, I was a theater guy. I, I had never been to theater when I was a kid. When I was yeah. a teenager, we did theater one day in English class. Right. And I was like a fish to water. I was like, this is this is great. What is this we're doing? What was it? It was Shakespeare. We were doing Romeo and Juliet. I played Capulet. I yell at Juliet for getting home late all the time or whatever. And, and you're I like, just, I can yell. I can yell. <laughs> that was that was that was Wolverine acting. Right. And um they turned out there was like a little drama club and I started doing that and it was just you know I, I really liken it to sports. Like, uh -huh. like everybody can play sports. Everybody can do theater. But right. there's always some one guy who for whatever reason he can stand up there and he can hit six right. home runs and in six games. And, yeah. the, and the, I just had an ability to do this. I think it was probably because I spent so much time when I was a kid locked in my bedroom talking to myself in the mirror. But at any rate, I lived in this fantasy world. And when I was given the opportunity, so there I am, an actor. So everybody says, you're an actor. You should be an actor. You yeah. should follow this. But I come from a very working class background where, yeah. like, you don't go in the arts. What did your dad do, do? He was a bookkeeper. Right. And my mom was a hairdresser. Or is a, you got a, brothers and sisters? I got a younger sister. Yeah, she's great. She's a school teacher. Uh -huh. And um, so I didn't think it was a practical idea. Right. And I went off to college. And I didn't do it. And I ended up doing theater again in college. And then eventually but not I studying just, it, just a theater group. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, And right. then I finally said, okay, look, uh, I dropped out. 
because I was doing too much acid and stuff. And then I went I back like that to it college. was acid. <laughs> yeah. That was your drug of choice. <laughs> yeah. Acid. That's Perfect. A, that's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. I, I worked my way into the okay. other, the more relaxing drugs <laughs> after that. Yeah. And and note, and I have to yeah. say this because I know that the youngins are out there listening, <laughs> yeah. stopped everything 31 years ago. So, wow. I mean, and I totally that's attribute. That's a big chunk half my life yeah. but i for me for this guy for this junkie yeah. i have to be i have to be clean and sober or i can't do anything i'm it's a i i'm disabled yeah it's a disability I you know, give, but, you but, give but, me a beer, and i'm not going to be i'm not going to show up for work I, I get that but like a lot of like what year did you get sober uh, 84. All right, so this is like, you know. Oh, I've done, I've done t- my kids say to me, how come you do so much stuff about being high and on drugs and everything when you don't do any of that stuff? Yeah, anymore? but you did some fairly, you know, uh, some of the very powerful work, the, you know, life-defining work, you know, career-changing work when you were fucked up. But I yeah, subverted I'm, everything. No, no, I was, I'm not saying I it's a good dressing thing. Rooms, yeah, I did no, all I, those. I get it. I, you, know, you know, I'm sober too, and, and you know, was, and we talk about that here. But it's it's sort of interesting that a lot of times people, and I'm not romanticizing it, but uh, but you had to hit the wall pretty hard and pretty publicly, and and you certainly explored um, the uh, you know the negative sides and positive sides of drug use and drinking in your work before you cleaned yeah, up. Yeah, and yeah. In, yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't regret it. I mean, I think you know that's. Everybody says that who's been down that route. Sure. The only problem you want to you want to survive it. You don't want to sure. come out the sure. other end like being a box. No, that's, no, that's yeah, no yeah. good. I, on the right side of the grass, I think, or is it right? Is, is that what it's called? <laughs> that's a, the wrong side of the grass. <laughs> you don't <laughs> under the roots. Yeah. Well, but, all right, I, so yeah, you, so I I came so I gave up. I gave up the whole. I, I, when I came to New York, I was yeah. so intimidated as yeah. an actor. I graduated college, and I just, and you gave, just moved to New York. Uh, I had come as a student, and mm-hmm. then I decided I wanted to live here because it was just amazing. You're talking 1975; mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. city was insane. It was like a, it was like broken, wasn't it? Yeah, I was living in Times Square, and I just thought this was the craziest, best thing I'd ever. I wanted to be here. It was here. just chaos, pirates, criminals oh, everywhere. Ab- absolutely, the cops would just leave at night, like 11 o'clock <laughs> at night. They were gone, and everything just went into total chaos, and the and the trains and everything. And I was young, so I didn't care. Yeah, I, I thought this was really and you blast. romanticized it, I imagine. Yeah, and I. Also, always getting deeper into the adventure so, of the drugs and everything. So you go as a student and you check it out, and you're like, "Holy shit, this is where I it's happening." Do, but I can't, I can't compete as an actor. I feel I right. really, I give up. Yeah, and I end up in Soho around all these visual artists. So I come. This is up, when you move there, yeah, in '76, '77, I worked at a place called The Kitchen, right? And all my friends were either composers, choreographers, or visual artists. There weren't. I didn't have any theater guys. But, but but this was sort of the beginning of that 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 artistic renaissance of of sort of a whole new type of expression. There was an art scene in New York that you know wasn't like the painters of the you know fifties and sixties that sort of evolved out of the the you know, whatever the New York art scene was, and now was going into all these different areas and taking real chances. Though, right? Well, it was. I had gotten very minimal, and it had gotten very esoteric. Like who were the people when you well, got there? Well, just prior to that, you you basically Phil Glass is the king of music, or he's becoming just starting, king. right? And there's everything, yeah. Donald Judd and and you know really clean, high minded shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My crowd is you know Robert Longo and Cindy Sherman and. Um, Keith Haring was over in another neighborhood, but that's all. Everybody's making pictures of things, stuff that anybody can look at and go, oh, I get what this is. 
and um, and we were having fun. We were also in the clubs like all the time, and this was just it was what had happened. What was, were the clubs like? CBs or or the other ones? They're like yeah, mud, mud club, mud, mud club, and um, tier so, tier three. So at that places. time, you know, you're so seeing... there's just a zillion young people showing up in New York, just thinking, "What crazy shit can I?" But make? Music, all the music that's going on, that's that's the height of CBGBs, right? And that's like the whole New York punk thing. You know, music just is being redefined. The, I showed up, my thing. I was not hip to the punk thing until somebody said we're gonna go, and I'm like, I don't want to do that punk thing uh when after hendrix died i didn't want to go hear any more rock and roll and they said no no come with it come hear this thing yeah and i don't know i think it was like um oh who was it the heartbreakers or something not oh, tom yeah. petty heartbreakers, no no johnny thunders johnny yeah, yeah, thunders yeah, 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 and this yeah. stuff was like real down and great dirty rock and roll yeah. kansas city yeah. uh, Max's Max's kansas, kansas city. city and uh that was what I, I was like, I love this. So and how, then I was just clubbing for the next three right, years. Right, but how, what was the creative process? When did it be, become apparent that you, know, you could, that there was a new theater happening, that performance was viable? Well, it was, it was all about a community. So there's all these lofts and people are just doing the craziest stuff. Some of it's like real theater. Some of it's like not real theater. Mm-hmm. You're like Willem Dafoe's down the street doing Worcester Group. stuff with Worcester Group. Yeah. And, they're, and they're doing, and Spalding was around in those days. Was he? Of course, that yeah. was the Spalding's beginning of Spalding. Of first, oh, I saw Spalding when I first got to New York. He was already doing Tooth of Crime by Sam Shepard. That's a hell great. of a play. He was a great guy. What a big too. play! What he what he what he play in that? He was uh, Hoss. Oh yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And he um and I went backstage. I was like, this kid. Yeah. Uh, can, hi, I just want to tell you, I thought that was great. He goes, uh, I said, can I? You know, will you have a cup of coffee with me? Yeah, yeah. Which people ask me all the time. And he goes, uh, no, but you can buy me a drink. Right. And we went to Magoo's, and he was incredibly. I never forgot the fact that this man was kind to me, and we were friends. Uh, uh, sadly, what did he tell he you? Tell me anything. I mean, what can you tell anybody? That's pretty much the smartest thing anybody could tell you is like, hey, just, kid, yeah, just go yeah, for yeah, it. Yeah. You know, what can do you, what you only do, you know? Just do it, right. That's what everybody has always said to me. That's what Oliver That's, Stone said to me when we, I was writing Talk Radio, the, the movie of it. It was like, I don't know what to tell you. Just keep writing. All right, so you it's, see the Worcester group. It's no good group. now, but keep writing. You're running around. There's all this vitality yeah, and, and so, weird shit going on. I'm sure you saw some, some stuff where you're like, oh, what is that shit? Yeah, oh, all the time. But the the main thing was we were entertaining each other. Right. We were like, who can make up some crazy shit that's going to make the other guys laugh? As right. opposed to, I'm going to make something that's going to go to Broadway. Or right. I'm going to make something that's going to be like commercially and there's no commercially anything you've got some nights eight people in the audience oh i know people. yeah and uh, yeah i had one place one time it was like six people and none of them spoke english and i'm like <laughs> yeah. playing to the guy who's taking yeah. the money at yeah. the, the coin buy tough crowd um and so i would be when i was writing i started creating these characters these monologue things and of course it was like when i first started it this was very intimidating. I mean, now people are so used to seeing this stuff, but to do an old bum or something, a really crazy yelling at you kind of bum, yeah. who had done that? You know, the only person who had, you know, they always forget that Robert Klein was the guy sure. who first started doing street people when he did that bit, please. Do you remember, please? Please! Yeah. He's a, uh, this guy in the street. Uh, he did junkies. A comedian. So, so, and then yeah. Pryor did it too. Oh, well, in Pryor, these guys are a big influence on me. The energy, mm-hmm. the like, come out and uh, yeah, the prior, the first Pryor live yeah. movie, right, knocked me out. And I said, I want to do that kind of energy 
in a theater because I am so bored with what's happening in the theater. So I started doing this stuff in these little and, and it was very aggressive. Never was, thought comedy though. I think we've talked about this before. Like because there wasn't really a comedy club scene there. So I, no. I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll give you a, a pass on that. But was there ever a thought to that? Oh, you were, there was sure because at a certain point they started lumping me together with the new comic mm-hmm. scene, which it was breaking. Catch a rising later. star. Yeah. Well, that. you know, Gilbert was doing his stuff. Richard. And, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And so they would say, "You're part of this." Like, right. Esquire wrote a piece about it or something. So I go, okay, I'm going to go do that. So I went to catch. <laughs> I stand up there. And, you know, they have a green light and a red light. Yeah. As soon as I started talking, they started blinking the red light. <laughs> and I'm feeling like I'm being run over and mugged at the same. I could not do it. There's two things I will always have tremendous respect for. One, stand-up comics, yeah. which I can't do it. Yeah. And two, radio talking. You know, I did the guy in the movie. Right. But to do it for real, yeah. it's fucking hard. It's hard. They've, they've, I've been guest. I've guessed sure. it for people. They say, hey, why don't you take the show for a night? Vince Skelsa would have me do right, it. Right, right. And I'm trying to think of what to say, and I can't think of anything. Because yeah. if I have a month to write a line sure, for right. a character, yeah, yeah, yeah. then I'll play the guy. Yeah, just to fill that dead air. Yeah, yeah, keep going. Yeah. Oh, Wait. it's... And, and also... I don't think people realize that everything you say, you've got to be ready to stand behind. Yeah. And if I have time to think about it, I can do that. But yeah. to be a guy who says, this is my view of life. Yeah. And, and I'm going to, it's going to be consistent and all. And yeah, but a lot of times it, it, it becomes it. a character. You, you know what I it's mean? It's all so, a character. Right. Everything you do is a character. You're a character right now. I'm a character right now. I'm right. nothing like this in real life. Yeah. I'm completely, I, I, I know. I know. You're I'm quiet. Just... <laughs> you rarely talk. <laughs> well, I was thinking about you with your cats and I was thinking if people could only see what I, how I actually spend my day, I have plants, yeah. I water my plants and yeah. my big moment of the day is checking the mail to yeah. see if I got a residual check. Yeah. $4 <laughs> from talk radio. It's running on some cable channel yeah yeah i'm gonna yeah. get a coffee yeah all right so okay so you you're you're doing this and you're like i'm gonna bring this intensity this energy these characters to theater and and i imagine well, i was when, in like a loft scene i was in like all kinds of clubs what was that other know? one that was a uh, yeah the other loft where that lasted a long time not the, it wasn't the kitchen it was somebody's it seemed like someone lived there it wasn't well, quite in soho it was upstairs and well, they had a lot of performance well, arlene had her place what was it uh, called i don't know arlene's or something there well yeah so right, right. Many places right but it, that's where it took place so when you're saying performing side right when you're performing for your friends that was also a community of people that were interested in seeing this stuff so it wasn't just you and spalding or you and cindy or whoever yeah yeah. people would know that was something was happening and you'd all go see that thing eventually the neighborhood got so big that you know you could have a hundred people or whatever and eventually built and built and built i think laurie anderson was the first one to start doing set shows repeatedly uh-huh which in a lot situation like usually you did one night right and that was it and then you never did that bit again but she would make a, a particular show and then i did the same i started thinking yeah this is like a do a set show with several and, characters yeah i would do a dozen characters did franklin furnace all these places the kitchen and was the uh, first show drinking in america no 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 this is the first show was called men inside then fun house and then Drinking America was the first one I did sober, which was like a hit show. And by then I was in real... Th- by then, Joe Papp had scouted me, brought me to the public theater. I'd done a couple of shows there. Then I did that at American Place because Joe said I couldn't come back and do any more solos at the public because we don't do solos anymore. Then I do Drinking in America. It's a huge hit. And Joe comes... To- Joe Papp comes to the show and goes... Why did you leave us? I said, well, you kicked me out. That's why. And yeah. he said, well, you come back <laughs> and you can do whatever you want to do. You are in the slot now. January, your sh- whatever it is you, you want to do will open in January 1986. And I said, well, I have an idea for a thing about a talk radio guy. 
He goes, great. You got anything written? I had 20 pages. Yeah. I was already in their calendar for the next year. And that was based I, on the, the Berg thing? No, no. That came in later. Oh, uh, really? Well, the guy that I created what was, his name? was- Daniel Berg? Daniel, Alan Berg. Alan Berg, It was very yeah. similar to the character I'd created for the play. Right. And when we were going to make the movie, I said to Ed Pressman, this is very complicated, but anyway, I said to Ed, Ed Pressman, there's a book about this guy who got gunned down in Colorado. Uh-huh. Uh, not, he wasn't in, was in, Col- yeah, in Colorado. Yeah, it was in Denver. Colorado. Yeah. Um, and we better buy this book because my play sounds so much like, and I, I, believe me, I did not base the play on this guy. Right. But when we did the movie, I seg- I, I merged the two and stories. And you had optioned the book. So you were yeah, able we to had, do Yeah, we had the book as, was part of our uh-huh. package. Um, and he had creepy rockets, Red Glare, come in at the end. <laughs> rockets, poor old Rockets. He yeah. was so great. Yeah, Did I, you know Rockets? I, 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 I saw him towards the end. Yeah. You, you know, like he would, uh, around, because I was living on A, uh, second between A and B in 89. 1989 to 91, 92. And I don't remember oh. where I saw him, but I was excited. And I didn't even know what his place in the whole scheme of things was, but I knew he was in that your movie and I knew he was sort of a guy. A well, Lower Rockets, East Side was guy. A, Rockets was a famous character of the scene, famous right. junkie, big junkie. Right. And kind of a doorman at, at, at various places. Uh-huh. The secret to Rockets, which I only knew from working with him, was that his brother had been one of the people who like established Microsoft or something and had cut off a chunk of stock for him that cost two cents, yeah. had given it to him, had become worth all this money. <laughs> and then he was able to keep up his junkie life based on yeah, Microsoft he, stock or so something. So you sort of this, like, like that. every, that's a great thing about New York that you don't see a lot in the same way is that there are actual characters within the scene that don't necessarily do anything, but they're an organic part of the scene that add to the, to the whole sort of oh, energy yeah. of the environment. Yeah. And that happens a lot in New York. It's like, that's that guy, you know, yeah. like, uh, well, we we had such a huge community of amazing people, and when AIDS came, it just was, Leveled oh it. my God, it was horrible. The people, we lost so many beautiful people. Yeah. Ethel Eichelberger. And, and, Herring. Uh, Klaus Nomi, Herring. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many. And and then the dope did its job, too, on mm-hmm. a few people. And so, yeah, it was... But I, I don't know if that always happens or doesn't happen to community. In that, in the, it was truly well, I think it's a singular event, horrible. the Lower East Side. I, yeah. I think that you know what happened there, and because it's ne- it's never recovered from it, and it sent generations searching for it, you know, for decades after what you guys started, you, you know, like long after when I was there in the '90s, there was still this sort of like the residual idea of living a, a performance life on the Lower East Side, but it didn't have the vitality or the originality necessarily that you guys had because you were at the epicenter of it. And it was um, cheap. We had cheap housing. I mean, yeah. it comes down to like, if you don't have to pay that much in rent. If you can live there, right. you're 23 years old, of course you're going to live a rock and roll existence. But between you and Spalding, and I guess, I I, I think on, in some weird way, you know, Karen Finley brought a lot of attention to you know what was going Lots on down people. there. Yeah. But it, also, but in a way that people were, you know, were able to mock it. Because I don't, I don't, you, you know, performance art became this like, what are you going to put yams in your pussy? You know, so, so it sort of got uh, minimized by uh, mainstream culture because of uh, characterization. Well, Saturday Night of it. Live did that amazing bit that time where, uh, 
they were like making fun of it. World World Federated Performance Art or something. And Adam <laughs> Sandler's pretending to be me, and he has like a curly wig on, and he's doing something like my bits. And, uh, well, and I it, think that anytime something happens, you know, culturally that that can be seen as show business, whether you want it to or not, and and it isn't show business, then show business is eventually going to gut it. Yeah, yeah. they are either going to steal it or they're going to gut it. Well, what was weird is it became very successful. I yeah. Mean, by the time I did Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll in ninety ninety or ninety one or something, I mean, we rolled up the biggest advance on an off Broadway show ever. I we saw that show four times. Oh, my God. It was weird because, like, I always had a little bit of a problem with you. I was like, you know, is he a comedian? What the fuck does that guy... No, I don't. (laughs) What what does that guy do? You know, because I was like, you know, diehard comic, and I'm like, he just wants to be a comic, you know. And then I went to see... uh, because I'd, I'd read about you and I'd, you know, I don't, I'd seen probably seen talk radio by that point and I, I'd never seen you live before. But then for some reason, I went to see it and you were still workshopping it. It was at the place where Stomp was, right? That, yes, that became where Stomp, the Orpheum. Right. Yeah. So I saw it in some version and then I, you know, in a smaller place, I don't know where. PS122, I used to do all my stuff right, with them. Right. We're going to do a benefit over there in a couple of So weeks. like, in a, and then I saw all these different characters and I'm like, holy shit, this guy's great. And then like, you know, I watched some of the characters, then I went to see it again and some of the characters were gone and I was thinking there, like, why did you take that guy out? You know, what where, what happened to that guy? And then, uh, and then there, and, and then when I saw it finally at the Orpheum, I'm like, so this is the final show, but I still was sort of like, well, I miss that one guy. Where is that guy? The one guy. I still remember which guy I, I miss. Was the doctor with the? No, it was the guy with the bong. Like I'm a rebel. <laughs> you remember you know, like, the 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 guy who was like the the outlaw, but he was just sitting on his couch smoking oh a bong. Oh my god, I don't even remember. You don't. And then there was the guy with the coke can. Yeah, I have a huge cock. What, oh yeah, yeah, that guy stayed in though. That guy, oh, right? He was great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm yeah. down. Yeah. I've got a long, thick, well-shaped prick. The kind <laughs> girls die for. Yeah, you're laughing. So what? Yeah, fuck you. Yeah, yeah. And he's just <laughs> yeah. sort of like because well, this... isn't that everybody's fear? Is right. that like there's some guy you know who's a hey, moron kind of? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's no good at work. He has no money. <laughs> yeah, but... but he can get any woman. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, those guys sh- massive schlong. But after that, I was sort of like, wow, this guy's you know he really something. And, and I, you know, I'm not. You don't need this validation, but yeah, but that was my. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so so it all builds up to sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That was, but was that was that before talk radio was after, right? Right after, yeah. That was sort of like the pith of everything get going really right for me right then. I did that, and then a couple of years later, I did pounding nails on the floor of my forehead, which I even like better. I saw that show too, Suburbia at Lincoln Center, right? And and then I did the Seagal movie around the same that 1994, I was it was hitting all the cylinders full. And when did you meet your wife? Your wife's a theater director, right? We've been married 35 years. So she met you drunk, Joe Bonnie. Yeah. Yeah, I'm drunk more than drunk. And I said to her, this is my lifestyle. This is who I am. Take it or leave it. And she would like cry and stuff. It was sad. And then four years later, I mean, she's getting up every morning at eight o'clock to go to work. I'm still like out of it. And I'm, uh, hey, some people need 10 hours of sleep a night. You know, it's, it's medically yeah, necessary. Horrible, horrible man. Terrible. And, um, and then it just, I don't even know what happened. I mean, somebody just said, you know, how are you doing? And I said, everything's great yeah I right had, like no income with your dead sniffling I, i'm waking up with in it's sweats every morning mm-hmm. and uh they said well come with me to the you know to the thing to the thing yeah the secret, secret society i know i talk about it 
But it's um, and that was the, the what a mitzvah, right? So yeah. um, and then said things, the Armenian guy, yeah. And it's <laughs> honorary, I'm gonna my. You can come to my bar mitzvah. Okay, It'll good. Like, Let me know when it is. Yeah. I'll write you a check. Give you a Jewish an Israeli uh, bond. I'll give you a twenty-five dollars Israeli savings bond. <laughs> In a a tree. You buy. Yeah. Give me a tree yeah, in yeah, Israel. Yeah, yeah. I'll yeah. get you a tree. So, but you collaborate with her too, right? A lot. Well, she directed all those early shows, and then she sort of peeled off and was direct, not and sort of. She peeled off, did her own shows, and now she's one of the premier directors in New York. She does stuff with, you know, Neil Labute and Susan Laurie Parks and Lynn Nottage, all the big, very very smart. Pulitzer Prize winning. Uh, now, from writers. that from that era, do you know how many friendships do you maintain? Are you friends with Cindy Sherman? Do you are you still like close to the, the yeah. to the core group? I mean, yeah, I mean, we don't see each other all the time. I mean, you get older and you have slightly, sure, but exactly. yeah, we do see each other. We um, we all love each other very much. Um, so there's still I that mean, sense my, of my, community. My circle of friends is sort of enlarged into another world of all right. the theater and yeah. and even movie and TV people who are just kind of my pals. I basically play poker now, so that's what I do. That's who my circle really? of friends are. Is Do you play cards once a week? Almost once a week. But like guy, actor guy, Liev got me started in this thing when we were doing talk radio on yeah. Broadway. And yeah. he said... I'm having a poker game, and it's like I don't gamble, I don't play, po- I don't do anything, I <laughs> yeah, don't yeah. like the numbers, nothing. And that was seven so he, years ago. So, and and I'm I, like sick into it. Now. Right. Well, I'm he like must terrible. have been like, well, yeah, we really want you to come, and, he, <laughs> and then you, you lost hundreds of dollars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> until you figured. No, the out. problem was I won that night, and yeah. that was that. Oh, that got since you Then I've lost. <laughs> nonstop. They, they always love the guy, especially in an established game. If you go like, I don't really know how to play. Oh, you really got to come. Yeah. And then yeah, they all yeah. know each other's tells, but you don't even know what a tell is, and you're fucking, you leave broke because you lucked out the first night. Yeah, and I've played everybody, and every it's 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 a lot of fun, but uh, so how do you get from like you know we do you do sex drugs and rock and roll? You starting to do movies? You're writing books. I mean, you write novels too. Yeah, that was after the play thing kind of stopped in the late '90s. I had kept writing plays. I still write plays, but they just weren't getting produced. And so I was fascinated by. I, I mean, there's there's all kinds of things that the internet have changed things. And, yeah. And the fact that you could buy a book anywhere, yeah. it changed the Or way. watch people fucking on your phone. But and you it's could... A big, <laughs> <laughs> it's an amazing world we that, live in. Well, it, yeah, well... Uh, yeah. So uh-huh. you can get a book to somebody in Nebraska that they couldn't get at their local bookstore, mm-hmm. and that changed everything. I mean, David Foster Wallace and all the kind of great stuff that was coming in that period, Dave Eggers, yeah. I, I'm like... I don't know. I like books, so I'm yeah. gonna write. So I started writing books, and I and I wrote three novels. And um, I don't think I ever found that audience. But the thing about a book is, it's still there. Yeah. And I had been doing so much ephemeral well, if you look stuff at it around us. There's books. so many of these books here, and you know what? I haven't read most of them. And don't of, tell any anybody. Of them. But a few of them. I've read, read the book that I gave you. I will. That perforated heart is a is so like navel gazing existential. What are you I'm saying, like, Eric? <laughs> Look, so, I got through it. Maybe it'll help you. <laughs> don't don't so, kill my voice, man. Also, I think you can do things when you're young mm-hmm. that you can't do when you're old, and there's things when you can do when you're older. So I can do long form now and have the the presence of mind to stick with it mm-hmm. until I have 300 pages done. Whereas when I was writing those short things, I had a million ideas, but I couldn't. I right. could never complete. So that's about all I could do is about a three-minute monologue, and I could write that and work on that. And now I'm in this other zone where maybe my ideas aren't so great, but I can write something very You have long. discipline. You have a, a, a different type of patience. You have creative confidence in a and way. I, and I had been writing 
all through this period, once I did talk radio, I was working for the man here in Hollywood. Right. Like, I did, you know, CSI, numerous. CSI, right? Or oh, one I, of them? No, I was, I was an actor in CI for C, yeah. Law and Order. That was more recent, but just I worked as a screenwriter for, you know. Oh, yeah? Like a uh, doctor? Well, like, yeah, give it to Bogosian? Yeah, or, I'd write, I'd, or get, you get a book or something and you adapt it. I mean, none of them got made into movies, but I you made got paid. A, I got paid in WGA, yeah. so like you got health benefits yeah. and stuff. Yeah. So that was like my invisible job. Right. Nobody knew I was doing. Right. And I did that for about 15, 20 years and it was good. Yeah. You, know, it, you have kids, right? I have two boys, yeah. How old are they? 28 and 24. Holy shit. Yeah. Holy shit is right. So they're like- How are uh, they doing? Great. Good. Yeah, they're not in college anymore. So now I can start to do my own life again, run around. And, <laughs> do you hang out with them? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, I'm not going to say, I mean, my relationship with my parents was fine, but it right. was typical of that time, which is sure. they're the parents and I'm yeah. the, but I had that completely. I love you, but fuck you. I got to yeah, go. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm angry at them and I'm yeah, not around yeah. and I go yeah, away for a long yeah. period of time. But my, my guys, I mean, I spent a lot, first of all, I'm the generation of, dads who spent a lot of time changing diapers and doing all that stuff with the and always around them my wife was working a lot so i'm with and so now there are these men that i have i have a relationship with i don't have with anybody else and you know what they make me laugh and that's, oh, that's all great. I, that's all i care about in relationships. and they don't know drunk you eric make me laugh, right no yeah. never that's great yeah they didn't never see me drunk they just heard the story they saw me rageaholic though i was early on when i was first getting sober and they were a little yeah. Daddy could get a little. They call me Crazy Daddy, <laughs> and everybody would like leave the room because <laughs> I'm going nuts. How'd you deal with fun. that? Because I, you know, like I'm just reckoning with that now. In the last few years, you know, at 16 years sober, the the rage problem finally exhausted itself. It literally. Yeah, that's exhausted. about when it. That's about when it burns out. Well, more and more, there's less and less to like. What am I? What am I being so freak? What am I so crazy about? What Why am, I am I so afraid? afraid? Yeah. What am I afraid of? Yeah. Uh, for me, it came to a sudden end. Because a friend of mine's son died from a drug overdose when mm. he was like 18 years old. One of my best friends. It was mind-blowing. Heartbreaking. Just, and it changed my whole notion of what's important, what isn't important in my life. And what am I losing my shit over this? Because he didn't do the Spanish homework. Right. Who cares? Right. And so I just stopped. I just said this. Right. I don't care because it was all about fear. Like they're not going to get into college or something. And right. it's like, oh, right. Wait, really? Right. You never cared about this shit in the first place. Why is this something that you're losing? You're going nuts. And so I just stopped. I said, if this kid ends up on the couch for the rest of his life smoking weed, which they never did any of that stuff. But, but it's interesting it's okay. what kicks in, you know, despite whatever you grew up with, there is that idea that you want your kids to have a opportunity to, you know, to, to find their way in the world, to do the, the responsible thing, even if they're, you know, they think that they don't want it now. There is that, I imagine, with a kid where it's sort of like, you may think that you want to be this way now, but you're going to regret it. Yeah. And, and you, there must well, have been we, some shame we you were more, carrying. Well, we had more frank conversations than I ever had with my parents. I mean, I, I would say to him, like Harry when he was 12 or something, I said, look, <clears throat> look, I just want to tell you this. This is my first time being a dad. Okay. Right. So you got to cut me some slack here. Just <laughs> go with it a little bit. Right. <laughs> and I would say stuff so, like, you know, um, you know how you kind of feel weird around girls and you're shy? Smoke weed, it'll be like multiplied by 10. So if you want it to be a lot worse, start smoking a lot of grass, and then you'll never talk to a girl again. And it's great because he was, um, well, he had a girlfriend, and he 
got laid a lot more than I did when I was. <laughs> and that's a whole other problem. That's called statutory rape, Harry. You can't do that. So, so you've had all these different sort of lives creatively, you know, as a you know performer, an actor, a screenwriter, novelist, and and collaborator with with other people and stuff. And and so I I imagine like I, this brings us to this point where you know you want to own your heritage, and then this book, like I just have to assume that, and, and I'm projecting, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, that you know when this thing started to blossom and and sort of you know, reveal all these things to you, not only about the Armenian genocide or about the history, that your your sense of family and everything else must have just kind of converged as well on this, you know, in, in the oh, sense... Oh, sure. Right. Well, I mean, you respect what it... Look, when you're a kid, old guys are just old guys. You love they're, them. They're not but, that into right. But they don't seem to have... And then you go, oh, oh, I get it. He went through all this stuff. This is what being this guy is. I mean, for me, it was it was a reversal of... I had rejected myself as a sort of ethnic. I was not going to be this sure. ethnic yeah, guy. Yeah, exactly. And I then know as that I, and more recently, I'm like, no, you are. You know, own it. <laughs> yeah. Love it. The music, the food. You know, when I was a little, when I was in the 60s, if I ate yogurt or something, yeah. which is an Armenian yeah. food, mudzun, we call yeah. it. The little kids in the neighborhood, they, they watch me eating it. Like, how do you eat? How can you eat that stuff? Right, That's right. So, ugh. disgusting. And now everybody eats yogurt, shish kebab, all the things that were things I grew up with that were so weird and foreign. But that's me. Yeah. You know? Now, we are a pretty anti, I mean, I said this earlier, but I mean, Middle Eastern people are yeah. kind of like endlessly put down in our society. And that's what I look like. I look like a guy who's an Arab or a mm-hmm. Jew or whatever. Yeah. And, and um, I have to, I have to kind of get past that. You know, it's weird. We live in a society, I actually said this to Spike Lee one time, where black people can be like heroes and white people are heroes, but brown people aren't, you mm-hmm. know? And I I think that's changing. That's changed lately. But pretty much the United States, we in our society, every country we have ripped off, we claim that they're the ones that are doing, like the Arabs are the sneaky people because we've been stealing their oil for like right. uh, 75 years. The Mexicans okay. are lazy. They pay for we, it. We're, 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 right. you know, all these people are, they're somehow bad or less than us. Black people are violent. I mm-hmm. mean, come on. Mm-hmm. There's like, black culture is not, black culture is actually more warm and embracing than than other cultures that I know of. So now so with, we put down all these people and I and I and I like I, I accept this idea of who I am in some way kind of less than that's crazy. It's just it's it is a little hard for me. One of the things about having kids is that I look at my boys and they are beautiful and wonderful and I remember when I was their age I was so self-conscious about my hair, this curly hair, people come up like touch yeah, it, yeah, or yeah. my skin is a little darker yeah. than other kids. And I look at my kids and I go, how could I have ever thought that about myself? What a so, horrible thing. So the, the, the act of, of Operation Nemesis, the act of creating this book, not only, it, it, it's an act of integration, yourself into your heritage and also the, the history of what you're talking about into the fabric of our culture. That, you know, you're raising awareness and also now you're a celebrated Armenian, I would imagine. I mean, you're here to... You, oh, the, the, the community, particularly the um, the people who are... The, the Armenian community has a very political side and a very non-political mm-hmm. side. And the political side, I was never part of that world. Uh, they're, they're th- the Armenian National Committee, who are actually having this big banquet this weekend and, have, and are honoring me with giving me an award. They have been so supportive. They are also the people who made sure everyone was aware of the Armenian genocide, the centennial mm-hmm. of it last April, which just happens 
I don't know if this is some kind of mark or something, but I was born on April 24th, which is the day that they commemorate the the, the beginning of all the killings. At any rate, yeah, I've, got, I've gotten to know these communities that are super tight Armenian communities here in Southern California, all over the place. I was in Vegas the other day there. I was like visiting the church there. And Do they think you got it right? You know, I was very wary of that as I was working on the book because I'm talking about some stuff that they were involved in a hundred years yeah. ago, and and finally I gave it to him. And in March, some of the big guys in the in the community took me aside at this event, and they said, "We're with you. Yeah. We, we like the book, and um, supported it, and have told all their people to." to to, to, to read it and buy it and, and so this forth. Is a, this and this is a new story to a lot of Armenians, I would absolutely. imagine. Absolutely, yeah. The, the old story, the, um, the original Tetlerian story of the kid, the engineering student who shot Talat Pasha in Berlin, is a story that a lot of Armenians know. The story of Operation Nemesis, that there was this huge conspiracy operating out of New England that knocked off six major Turks, who, by the way, like I say, if you're going to talk about the Armenian genocide, you've got to mention that five years later they did this. That's news to a lot, a lot, a lot of people. And uh, and I think it's interesting not just as an Armenian, but in terms of world history. I don't know of any story. I mean, Munich is kind of related to it, but uh, they basically knocked off a whole government. Mm-hmm. It would be like if a Jew had found Hitler and Goering and Goebbels and all these guys and, and killed them. Wiesenthal, they, he tried. Yeah. Yeah, he got a yeah. few. Yeah. Yeah. And it has the same kind of, um, uh, like with Eichmann going into another country right. and doing this thing. This is not legal. Right. So you're, you're stuck with this thing of like, it's kind of illegal. It's not kind of. It is illegal what they're doing. War criminals. They're, they're kind of murder incorporated yeah. going after these guys. Oh, you mean them? Yeah. And yeah. then there's this sort of sense of like, what is God? What's what is justice? And then justice. Mm-hmm. And then you basically say, what's right? Mm-hmm. And if these guys are really, and they are responsible for murdering a million people, then some people felt it was their job to go and hunt them not down let and, them get away with yeah, it, or maybe come back to power later and keep killing more Armenians, which was another part of it. Well, they had, by the way, I have to say, yeah. they they had already been condemned to death by trials after sure. the war. There were war crimes trials, and all these men had been. They were. It was already established in court in Turkey. Um, but at any rate, I just this story blew me away. I didn't know it. I honestly working on it. I thought I was going to get it done a lot faster than. I'm, I'm good friends with Sarah Vowell, mm-hmm. and she was sort of like rabbied me through this thing a little bit. And and so I thought, oh, I can write a popular history. I'll just learn all the facts, and then I'll kind of put it in my own voice. But it turned out to be a much more serious and hard thing. So about halfway through it, I realized I was really in deep with a complicated story. But what are you going to do? you got to finish it. So I kept going. And it's good you so had it's that a, discipline. It's a... And you wrote something I really that had could, nowhere else to go. I mean, be, I had to finish. What are you going to climb a mountain and go halfway? It's you like it's it. going to be a text. It is a text. It's a it's a and, and there's an audio book too. So it's me reading, and I don't know how to pronounce any of these Armenian names. So it's just insane <laughs> trying to say all this stuff. I can I don't even know how to pronounce my own last name. You know, it's like it's Bogosian, Bogosian. What is Bogosian? It? Well, the correct pronunciation is Bogosian. Yeah, that, that's but not some, yeah, yeah. That's a little too true. <laughs> Who? <laughs> well, I used to do when I did like talk shows and stuff yeah. when I first started my career. They'd be like, today we have Eric. B- how do you say that name? I mean, I'm, I'm like, come on, yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. You could have me on as a guest, and you're gonna do this. It's to hard. Me. I get it all the time. Marin, Moran, Moron. Yeah. <laughs> fucking horrible. Mine, yeah. I think, is simple. It's a lot less complicated than yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, what part of New England did these guys work from? 
uh, Boston. Uh, then there was a guy in Albany. There was a, a CPA in ba- Albany. There was an insurance agent in Hartford, Connecticut. Oh, my God. And they were all part of the same political party. And they basically said, this has to happen. It reminds me of the Cubans, too, that, yes. with the plot to kill Castro. Like, there are these expats yes. who, 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 you know, want to take, you know, do what's right. So they knew that this kid, Solomon Tetlerian, had shot and killed somebody in Constantinople who they who was seen as sort of a traitor. And they recruited him. They brought him to Boston. They looked him over because they knew they wanted him to get caught so that then in the trial, he could talk about the Armenian genocide. They wanted people to hear about it. So they needed a guy who, who would be presentable. And he was a very sympathetic character with this. Did he know he was going to get caught? Yeah. He, the plan was to get caught. And to go and and then get as many witnesses into the trial as possible to talk about the Armenian genocide, which is what they did. So this was a very famous trial. Nineteen twenty-one, New York Times covered it. It was covered all around the world, and uh, and this guy was so sympathetic because everybody thought that he had been the survivor of these massacres. He had seen his mother beheaded right in front of him, and he was just this engineering student happened to see this guy in the street and went and got a gun. Of course, none of that was true. He was he knew exactly what he was doing. In fact, I even referred to a CIA manual on 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 how to kill people and the way he killed the guy which was to shoot him in the back of the neck right at the at the top of the spine that is the most effective way to make sure that you're victim and, and he one kill, shot he killed all six of them no no he killed him and then there were other assassins who were operating all around Europe there were there were all kinds of people there were Armenians who spoke Turkish who pretended to be Turks and there was one guy who actually got circumcised so that when he was in like uh, the the hammam that Turks if they saw him they would think that he was Muslim because Muslims get circumcised like Jews do and right all oh, right so he um, anyway all these different guys were all over the place in Rome they knocked a guy they got the Grand Vizier. They went back to Berlin. They killed two more guys there. They got somebody in Constantinople. They got Jamal Pasha in in, uh, Tbilisi. And they basically, one other guy got caught. He also got cut loose based on some idea of temporary insanity. And they they basically grew up, most of them are old men here in California by the 1960s. There's pictures of them hanging around each other. I can show you in the picture, this guy killed two people, this guy killed three people, this guy killed... Out here like in Glendale? Uh, San Francisco, oh, Los yeah. Angeles. Well, so they kept more... in touch. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they knew who each other. Although they never, they didn't talk about it. One of the interesting things about this whole thing was it sort of came out of nowhere. These were all nobodies. They were mm-hmm. all like, n- nobody ever knew these people. And then once they shut the operation down, they basically put all the stuff away and didn't talk about it ever again. So when I heard this story, it was like, what? Mm. And where's the book on this? Where's something about this? And I couldn't. There was this one obscure book coming out of France by Jacques de Rogy, and I used that for some source, and then I did my own research, found out that British intelligence probably helped these guys out. British intelligence wanted these Turks killed as well, and they thought, well, we could kill them, or we could just tell the Armenians where they live. Mm-hmm. And so they, they, I think they slipped the address to the Armenians. It's fascinating because, like, you know, you did this great service for the community and for history and for everything else. And you just, you know, the, the impetus was like, I'm going to write a movie. And then oh, yeah. you, then all of a sudden it became a bigger responsibility. Yeah. It became a humanitarian responsibility. <laughs> I don't know. I well, mean, obviously, I, whatever the compulsion was, you were like, how has this story not been told properly? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't an... E- 
I didn't see how the up there was a, no upside for ego. There was no money upside. I mean, Little Brown paid me in advance, but it wasn't that that was like a, in it for that. How did that feel for you, doing something relatively selfless? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I do anything. I just do stuff. I mean, come I read, on, you're dude, too sober to say that. No, listen, I did. I I met Mike Judge when I was working with Richard Linkletter. I met Mike Judge down in Austin. Yeah. I said I love Beavis and Butthead do America. Uh, Beavis and Butthead. And uh, if you ever want anything, he goes, "Well, we're going to do this movie, Beavis and Butthead do America." And so I said, well, anything. So he had me do three voiceovers in that movie, you know, scale 500 mm-hmm. bucks or something. And I forgot about it. And, uh, you know, whatever it was, $50,000 later, uh, with all the ch- royalties and everything, sure. because the movie was a huge, in fact, it's probably the biggest hit yeah. I've ever been involved with. But I, I'm, I try to lead with, well, let me put it this way. I try to lead with have fun, keep you know, keep things interesting. And every time I try to do something for money or I'm, I got this big plan. Yeah. I wrote an action movie one time cause I thought I would sell it and get millions of dollars. Never works out. Yeah. All those plans right. don't work out. Right. Good. I'm no good with the plans. I started a production company. I was going to make a live video, which uh-huh. exists, spent $60,000 in this thing. Yeah. Nothing. Couldn't get anyone. No Nobody wanted. It. No, it doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can go on the hundred monologues.com site and see that. So you're, things, you're but. doomed to, uh, to operate from your passion. I'm doing the having uh, being clueless. I just no, don't but you know. Get, I, you get possessed. The, the first thing I right, you're a compulsive person. I mean, nobody writes an Armenian history book <laughs> just because, you know, like, yeah, I think I'm going to. It, you, it you, just makes sense to me. You know, when I'm working on anything writing, and I know you've had this experience, it can it, it quickly becomes a dead end or it like opens up like a flower. And you right, go, right. oh, wow. oh, I found this thing. This works. That's what, you, but that's what you're looking and, for. Yeah. That's yeah. that's the moment. Yeah. You, you, you can hope for that, but you can't plan it is basically what you're no, saying. No, you don't know what. And 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 I and I don't know where it's coming from, and I've kind of given in to. Yeah, don't, don't. let's see what happens. Sure, I'm, it makes life a little more exciting because since I'm not planning everything, yeah, uh, who knows what's going to be next year? I mean, the, you take the Law and Order thing. I yeah. mean, my friend Warren Light calls me up one day and says, "Come over to the offices today and say hi to everybody." I go, "I'm really busy today. I can't come over." He goes, "Well, Dick's here. Come over and say Dick Wolf." Mm-hmm. I said, I, I, "I really, Warren. I'm." T-. He goes, "I really think you should come over and say hi to Dick." So I come over. Dick Wolf says hi to me and says, "Do you want to be the captain on Law and Order?" And 60 episodes later, I've just—I mean, I've had the time of my life, and it was a blast doing that thing. Did not see that coming. And you made a living doing all. what you do. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, drinking. I was having cups of coffee. Walk in the room, say four lines, drink a <laughs> cup of coffee, and get to be in that beginning, the header of the of the show. What do they, what do, they do? And, and you wrote this amazing book about the, this uh, this yes, untold that paid for it. That paid for it. That but paid for the book. It's a it's an exciting life you lead, and and Operation Nemesis just came out a few months ago, right? Yeah. And you have you are are an active part of a community that you you just you uh, you know, through youthful condescension detached from, and yes. now you have done this amazing gift. Now I for realize them. how lucky I am to be one of these amazing people called Armenians. So that's what I am. All right. Well, it was great talking to you, Eric. Thanks, Mark. That's it. That's the show. Um, thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, uh, did I tell you? I mean, Eric goes, man. That was great. It's always good to see him. It's exciting. Yeah, talking to Eric Bogosian is like being on a, 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 an amusement park ride. Good times. 
what else do I got to tell you? WTFpod.com. You know, get your stuff, do the thing. If you want posters for Christmas, it's getting tight. It's getting tight now. You know, we might be able to make it under the wire. Don't know. But uh, enjoy yourselves, and I'll talk to you Monday. Got some big shows coming up. What else? I got to uh, I got to brush my teeth and get dressed and, and go be an actor, do a character that's vaguely like me. It's a little uh, muted jazz trumpet for the end. Yep. Boomer lives!